Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, with federal water cutbacks happening across the West, farms are looking at new technology so they can keep growing. And so it's just a constant progression to try to use less water. We'll have more on that. And we hear about a project that works with local communities to help uncover the lost stories of lynchings, including here in our state. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. It's almost been a month now since state lawmakers kicked off their four-month legislative session. Hundreds of bills are now up for debate, and the outcome will affect everything from how the state responds to wildfires to marijuana policies at the workplace. Joining us now with more is KUNC's state capitol reporter, Scott Franz. Hey, Scott. Hey, Aaron. Let's start with a recent leadership shakeup at the Capitol. Lawmakers just selected a new Senate president to replace Leroy Garcia. He's stepping down early to take a job with the Biden administration. So who did Democrats choose and and how did they make their selection? Well, Steve Finberg of Boulder is getting the promotion. Uh, There really was no drama or drawn out vote um, from the 20 Democrats um, who gathered to to choose Garcia's replacement. Um, This really signals that this caucus is united behind Finberg. Uh, He's from Boulder and he's best known for two policies in the last couple of years. Um, He sponsored the big push to give local governments in Colorado more control over oil and gas regulations. Um, That was Senate Bill 181. Um, He also led the Capitol's response to last year's mass shooting at the Boulder King Supers. You know, this was um, a tragedy in his district. Um, He was the one who, you know, after it led the effort to let cities like Boulder uh, ban assault weapons. Right. And they also chose Senator Dominic Moreno as the new majority leader. Right. And and many people outside this building probably don't know much about Senator Moreno. Um, He is one of the most influential lawmakers when it comes to writing the state budget every year. Um, You know, another thing to note is he's had some disagreements with the governor about the budget over the years, um, including Polis's push to fund full day kindergarten a few years ago. That was the governor's top priority. Um, Moreno thought at the time that more money perhaps should be going toward roads and bridges. Um, So, you know, a thing I'll be keeping an eye on is is how this promotion might affect the governor's relationship with the Senate. You know, the the leadership shakeup may present itself in other ways. Finberg, for example, um, appears a lot more supportive of um, gun control legislation than Leroy Garcia did. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how things play out. Yeah, lots of things to watch. Well, let's turn to some of the bills that have been introduced. Yeah, there's uh, more than 340 of them now, Aaron. I mean, they're adding up quicker than than I can keep count. It seems like every time I wake up, there's there's a dozen more. Uh, my colleague Marianne Goodland um, here in the basement press office actually said the other day, you know, we've we've appeared to reach the um, the fire hose portion of the session, which is you know what we call this time of year that the bills start flying. <laughs> well, I imagine you have to pick some favorites. Then, what which ones are you most interested in right now? Well, one of the ones I'm watching this week is this ongoing response to wildfires in Colorado. You know, lawmakers have 
kind of grappled with this over the years. They thought they did a lot last year, and then you know we saw the destruction of the Marshall Fire. Um, but this week, the debate is starting over a bill that aims to make insurance companies reimburse wildfire survivors more quickly after they lose their homes. You know, we've heard complaints from people who says it takes too long and there's too many hurdles to get that reimbursement process started. Um, you know, right now, insurance companies are required to pay 30% of the loss up front. Um, this bill seeks to change that dramatically to 80%. Um, you know, another thing I'm watching is Governor Polis is revealing a package of legislation focusing on policing and public safety. You know, it's he's up for re-election and he's made this a top priority. Um, but already there's drama um, because some police associations in a letter are saying, you know, they're they're skeptical and they're not supporting some of it because they don't think it will reduce crime the way. Um, the governor um, says it will. So that debate's going to heat up in the coming weeks here at the Capitol. Um, and finally, you know, no legislative session here would be complete without some debate about marijuana. Uh, there's a bill on the table right now to protect workers from being fired um, if they use it off the clock. You know, this has been something that's resulted in many legal battles going up to the state Supreme Court. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if there's any movement on that this year. Yeah. Well, what are the big priorities, the overarching priorities for lawmakers this session? And I'm curious if the bills that are coming up are aligned with those goals. Well, the top lawmakers from both parties, when they when they kicked off the session, they said lowering the cost of living would be their top focus. Now, you know, a lot of the bills I just described don't seem to be um, dealing with that specifically. Um, we have seen a couple bills so far. Um, you know, more on that cost of living front, you know, for example, even one that would reimburse residents if they have something stolen off of their front porch, giving them money to, to put a lockbox out there, you know, which is an issue I know probably affects a lot of people. Um, but many of those kind of cost of living bills are still looming and we're still waiting for them. Um, you know, there's $400 million of um, federal coronavirus relief that lawmakers have pledged to send to affordable housing projects, um, but those bills haven't been drafted. They've promised this year, so you know that, that might be in the later phases of the session. Right. Well, Scott, what are Republicans doing for you know another year? They're in the minority in both the House and the Senate. Right. You know, this year they seem a lot more unified than they have in previous sessions. We've seen some some fractures within the Republican caucus, you know, versus uh, moderate Republicans and um, you know, the um, more ones who are supporting more conservative policies, um, you know, they're still promoting what they're calling their commitment to Colorado. It's a, it's a package of more than 40 bills. Um, but one interesting development I've noticed, um, there was a Republican bill aiming to force hospitals to require at least one visitor during the, during the pandemic. Um, you know, this is an issue that that is very emotional. It's affected so many Coloradans who have, you know, seen their loved ones die alone in the hospital, can't visit them. Um, and Democrats, you know, this this bill uh, was sent to what we call a, a kill committee here at the Capitol, one that is known for um, rejecting Republican bills. And, and Democrats were actually swayed by this emotional testimony and voted to, to postpone action on it, meaning it's still alive here. The debate is still kind of going on in the background. Um, so, you know, that's an example of a Republican-led effort that, that appears to be gaining some traction. 
Hmm. Well, you mentioned the pandemic, and so I, I have to ask about how the session is going, because this is yet another session convened under the cloud of COVID-19. How are things going, and you know, how are lawmakers kind of settling in with these restrictions? Right. Yeah. You know, I I think we talked earlier about how the plexiglass barriers were gone. Some of the precautions that were in place, um, you know, when the virus was more prevalent have disappeared. But there's still, you know, a rapid testing facility open to the public right outside of the Capitol building. Um, you know, I've been able to, to use that a couple times. Um, it, it is starting to feel more and more um, normal in terms of how business is being conducted. You know, that's from the range of bills we're seeing that aren't related to the pandemic, um, you know, to the schedule, to, uh, you know, I think at the start of the session, there were a lot of lawmakers working remotely, some of them because they had COVID. Um, but I think as the state gets into a better place with case numbers, um, we're starting to see that um, get a lot better. KUNC's state capital reporter, Scott Franz. We look forward to hearing from you uh, more in the future, and thank you for joining us today. Hey, my pleasure, Erin. Thank you. In the Colorado River Basin, agriculture accounts for about 80% of all the water used. As the river supply shrinks, some farms are taking mandatory cutbacks for the first time ever, and that's left many wondering if new technology can help them use less water. KUNC's Alex Hager visited growers in one of the driest parts of the Southwest and has their story. It's a warm winter day in Yuma, Arizona, and the desert sun is beating down on a sea of low green fields. Matt McGuire looks out on neat rows of cauliflower and lettuce. Those are the main crops, but we have other crops. We're actually growing carrots, radishes, celery. McGuire is the chief agricultural officer for J.V. Smith Companies, which grows all this produce. Spring mix, spinach, you name it. You find it on the grocery shelf and it's a leafy green. It probably came from here. He says 80% of the country's wintertime vegetables come from this area, and the rows of veggies are striking in their perfection. The field is a corduroy of precision-cut stripes, and the dirt that holds the roots is chiseled into angles you could measure with a protractor. These laser-leveled fields are just one innovation that's come along all in the name of efficiency. This system is showing us so far when we're doing it, that uses half as much water as what we're using for sprinklers. And so it's just a uh, constant progression to try to use less water. They're trying to use less partly because someday they might be given less. Farms in other parts of Arizona are already seeing cutbacks to their allocation from the Colorado River due to drought that's straining the entire region. And at this rate, the cuts will hit more farms in the years ahead. Hope and pray for more rain, more snow, but we're trying to prepare for less water. Farms everywhere have long been adopting new technologies to help the bottom line, which right now includes using less water. Paul Brierley works on desert agriculture at the University of Arizona. I have farmers today that say, well, we're doing everything as good as can possibly be done. And, and I always say, let's look in 50 years and look back and we'll laugh at these pictures just as much as, as we laugh at the pictures from 50 years ago. He says that innovation includes complex weather data, mobile apps, drones and satellites, all to help measure and distribute water. This was something that um, a lot of money's gone into from a lot of sources uh, proactively, really. It's not because government said you, you have less water this year. It's because the industry wanted to know 
how can we best figure out what's the right amount of water? New tech on farms throughout the Southwest can lead to less water applied to crops. But that doesn't always mean the water is being saved. Farmers are more interested in income from water. That's Frank Ward. He studies water policy and the economics of agriculture at New Mexico State University. They're more interested in what part of their water applied gets to the root zone. Uh, So, you know, conservation is less of an issue for the typical farmer than you might think. One common technique that appears to bring water use down is drip irrigation. Drip irrigation actually... For the plant, you typically uses more water, depending on how you apply it. Uh, So your recharge to the aquifer goes way, way down. Ward co-authored a paper explaining how some of the most popular farm technologies don't actually decrease water use on a basin-wide scale, but they're still being adopted because... At an individual farm scale, it may look like it's conserving water because you're applying applying a lot less, but the, uh, the research seems to be showing that shifts into drip irrigation are not conserving water, but they are raising farm income. So when it comes to the future of farming in an area with less water to go around, Ward says rising prices will mean more dedicated efforts to use less, eventually grow less. And any of those areas where you have heavy urban pressure on water use and where you have water trading, you would probably expect farmers to gradually rent or transfer their water from farms into cities. And those realities may be on the way for parts of the Colorado River Basin. Climate scientists are projecting a warm and dry future where dropping reservoir levels mean more mandatory cutbacks. In Yuma, Arizona, I'm Alex Hager, KUNC. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The Equal Justice Initiative is a nonprofit organization based in Montgomery, Alabama, which works to end mass incarceration, excessive punishment, and racial inequality in the U.S. The EJI opened the Legacy Museum there in 2018 and has launched a number of projects dedicated to exposing the lasting impact of slavery and to honor the lives of those lost to racist hate crimes. One of those efforts, the Community Remembrance Project, works with local communities to help uncover the lost stories of lynchings, including here in Colorado. Last year, we spoke about the history of those lynchings in our state with Jennifer Taylor, a senior attorney at the Equal Justice Initiative, who works with some of those community organizations. At the Legacy Museum, there's a narrative that slavery never really truly ended in the United States. It just evolved and specifically evolved into the mass incarceration of people of color. Can you tell me more about that pipeline and how slavery has disguised itself in modern society? Yes. At the same time that we understand that enslavement involved taking people from Africa and forcing them to work, it was also about creating ideas about why that kind of mistreatment was okay. And those were ideas that had to do with creating a racial hierarchy and arguing that African-Americans were a type of people that it was important to exert a certain kind of control over. 
And so at the point that African-Americans are emancipated, there is not ever a point in which those ideas are eradicated. So new institutions emerge, including lynching, Jim Crow, and also mass incarceration. I wanted to ask about the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. This is a large monument in Montgomery that recognizes victims of lynching in America. What is the message of this monument and and who is it for? Our aim is to both highlight the individual incidents of lynching and also encourage people to understand that this was also a mass attack against the entire African-American community. Because each time a lynching took place, in addition to the particular person who was harmed, it also had an impact on any African-American person who heard about it because each person knew that that could happen to any of them. And so our aim is for it to serve as both a place that people can come to if they don't have information about this history, but it can also be a place that people can come to who know about this painful history and have a personal connection to it and have had to hold that pain for a long time. We want this site to be a place that people can come to for conversation and healing. To create this memorial, staff with the Equal Justice Initiative researched and uncovered lynchings across the country. Many of these went unreported at the time that they occurred. Can you talk about how your team works with individual communities to research and then to reveal these stories? We started our research about a decade ago. We were certainly able to pull from a lot of existing information and then also made an effort to add more information through our own review of historical records. No matter how many incidents of lynching we are able to compile, it will always be an undercount because there are always going to be incidents that weren't reported and that people in the local communities were afraid to talk about. Part of how we continue the research is through our community remembrance project in which we partner with people in communities who have a local history of a lynching and they're interested in increasing public awareness of it, either by erecting a historical marker or organizing some other kind of an event. And that's often an opportunity for us to collect new information about the lynching because our local partners are often able to get access to archives and additional information. According to the EJI, there are five identified lynchings in Colorado. That number includes the murder of Preston Porter Jr. Can you share a bit about this story, what happened to Preston, and how your team has memorialized him today? This is a lynching that happened in November of 1900. He was only 15. It's an incident in which after a white woman was murdered, he and um, some other members of his family were identified as people that officials were interested in investigating. There wasn't really evidence that connected them to the crime at all. But after they were arrested, the police claimed that he had admitted that he was involved. And after that was made public, 
before he was able to stand a trial, before the state had to present any evidence, and before he had an opportunity to defend himself. A mob of over 300 white people pulled him from a train and lynched him by burning him alive. There are a lot of newspaper articles that provide a lot of specific information, how he begged for his life. And several of the newspaper articles even provide identities of some of the people who participated in the mob. Despite that information, the official investigation concluded that he was killed by unknown persons and no one was ever held accountable for the lynching. Afterward, lawmakers in the state of Colorado were so embarrassed by the attention that was accorded to the lynching, they ultimately passed a law to reinstate capital punishment because it was an argument that the lynching had happened because they didn't have capital punishment anymore. And so it's also a case that really highlights that connection between capital punishment and lynching. It's a horrific case, and it's also a case that has been a part of our community remembrance project because last November, around the time of the 120th anniversary of the lynching, we were able to partner with a local community who had organized to erect a marker about the lynching so that it is now less of a hidden part of the state's history. A lot of people hearing this story might be surprised to know that any lynchings, um, and especially one so brutal involving someone so young, occurred in Colorado. What would you say to Coloradans just learning about this history? I think I would encourage anyone that we don't want to respond to our painful history by hiding from it. It's important that we confront it so that we can learn from it and identify how it's continuing to impact us and do everything possible to stop ourselves from repeating those same horrific events. Jennifer Taylor is a senior attorney at the Equal Justice Initiative. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. The 26th annual Denver Jewish Film Festival opens on February 14th and runs through February 22nd. It takes place both in person and online with a schedule of 34 movies. For KUNC film critic Howie Mofshevitz, three films are of special interest. Persian Lessons is a surprise from a bunch of directions. Director Vadim Perlman is Ukrainian. A year ago, the film was submitted to the Oscars as coming from Belarus, but was disqualified because too few people from Belarus actually worked on it. The film mixes absurdities and probabilities, some graphic Nazi brutality, unexpected moments of tenderness which you don't trust, and something like surrealism. Gilles, played by Nahuel Perez Biscayart, an actor from Argentina, plays a young Frenchman about to be shot by the Nazis when he proclaims that he's Persian, not Jewish. It happens that a Nazi officer on the scene dreams of opening a restaurant in Tehran, and he wants Gilles to teach him to speak Persian or Farsi. Gilles doesn't know a word of Farsi, but he invents vocabulary for the Nazi to memorize. Against a world of murders, beatings, and starvation, the contrast between brutality and simple weirdness is hard to absorb. Among other odd elements, the words Gilles invents don't sound a bit like any language known to human beings. But the Nazi just eats it up. Much of the film boggles the mind, and you wonder how Gilles manages to remember the nonsense words he creates. The Nazi asks the Persian words for restaurant, bread, and spoon, and Gilles makes them up. Restaurant. Restaurant. 
heißt Onordan. 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 It's a befuddling picture, and you can't tell if Gilles is just desperate to survive or if he's more thoughtful than we think. There are hints. When the Nazi sees a group of Jews being led to slaughter, he says they're nameless. But Gilles responds that they're nameless only because the Nazi doesn't know their names. But it all comes together at the end in a scene I will not reveal. Persian Lessons hits you with a profound and crystal clear sadness and the understanding of how important it is to bear witness to evil. German filmmaker Elena Horn's movie The Lesson also sneaks up on viewers. It's about the immense problem of how to teach about the Holocaust in Germany now, when there are few survivors to tell what happened, public memory has faded, and neo-Nazism is rearing its despicable head. Horn narrates the film, talking about the difficulties. Archival images show German schoolchildren in the 1930s as they raise their arms in the Hitler salute, and as malevolent teachers present a rabid version of genetics. These pictures contrast with young German kids in a small rural town in the present. They're children. Their blank faces are flush with their youth. They haven't the experience or even the vocabulary to comprehend what they're being taught or to articulate their own personal reactions to it. Some of them are confused because they've picked up the whispers about how none of it was true and Hitler wasn't so bad as people say. On a visit to a camp, one girl says it seems nice, and she's not wrong. The buildings are clean now, the grass is green, and it's hard for a 14-year-old to imagine that more than 70 years earlier, people were tortured, murdered, and incinerated in this place. I knew a woman who'd been in the Hitler Youth. When she got just a little bit older, she was horrified. But as a 10-year-old, she loved it, the uniforms, the marching, and the singing. What pulls the lesson together is that the film is director Elena Horn's confrontation with herself, and that cuts deep. The Jewish experience in the world is not just about Nazi-sponsored genocide, and it's not just about Jews. The film Neighbors takes place on the Syrian border with Turkey, among Kurds who are despised in both countries. A Kurdish boy witnesses the persecutions, and in school hears the teacher refer to Syria's president as Führer. For KUNC, I'm Howie Mofshevitz. That's our show for today. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Digital editing is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat and Jackie High. I'm Erin O'Toole. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 